This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. All right. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with Salem Straub, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Axe Wax. Yes, that's right, ladies and germs, Axe Wax. It's a food-safe, all-natural wax for your axe or your hammer or your knives or your boots. Or believe it or not, I've got a message from some of our listeners who one of them was late to work and grabbed a little bit of Axe Wax, slapped it on their dome, rubbed it through their hair, and they're all squared away. I mean, it's all natural. What's the big deal? I don't know if that's really what Axe Wax wants it for, but what am I, who am I to say? And if you go to axewax.us and you put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you get 10% off. So go get yourself a couple pucks of Axe Wax. You guys are doing great. They're back on with me for a few more episodes, and we'll get this squared away. So Axe Wax, thanks again. Guys, Knife Talk, uh, Knife Talk, uh, FULLBLAST10, 10% off, axewax.us. My guest is on my Mount Rushmore. I have a very short, I'm very lucky that I've been able to really talk to the people on my Mount Rushmore of knife makers. Salem Straub of Promethean Blades, Promethean Knives. Promethean Knives or Promethean Blades? Promethean Knives, good sir. Promethean Knives is one of the great American bladesmiths of our generation. He's out and out west. He's doing great things, and I'm very grateful that you're here. Salem, how are you? Hey, Jeff. Well, first of all, it's it's really an honor to be here. Um, and hey, thanks a lot for the nice compliment, man. Being on your Mount Rushmore is is a uh, really an honor as well. Um, hey, uh, it's another day in paradise here. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day, man. And let's let's chop it up. I'm looking forward to it. Well, the first thing I want to do is apologize to you because I have anxiety and my anxiety gets the best of me. And what happens is, is, and I'm sure that you do too, in terms of being organized, organization for me is something that's very, I take very seriously in terms of, you know, how you do things and stuff like that. And I get like with this podcast and knife talk and all that, I try to really organize myself to the point where I give myself very slim margins. And I hounded you on in their emails. And then when you didn't respond to my anxiety, and it wasn't your fault. It was my own anxiety getting the best of me. I had to reach out to your friend, Will, our friend, Will Stelter, to be the receptionist to get him to, to get you to respond to your emails. But I want to apologize because I'm just a maniac, and I'm sorry for inflicting you with my mania. Uh, hey, man, you're preaching to the choir in terms of um, anxiety <laughs> in general, I think. Um, it, it may be that our anxiety just it it manifests in different ways mine is kind of like things pile up for me especially with online communications and stuff to the point where it's overwhelming and uh and i'll be out in the shop trying to do stuff i'm actively sometimes avoiding my responsibility to communicate with people so hey uh unfortunately sometimes people got to do what they got to do and use a circuitous route like going through our responsible young friend which apparently worked great and so so thank you for your persistence because unfortunately that's what i need sometimes <laughs> come on man listen i mean that th- th- that's the as a small business owner 
especially one of your caliber, the, the, the excellence of your work, uh, the culinary knives and the swords and all the other stuff, you have a demand that unfortunately is you're unable to quench the de you quench the demand really and I, and I find the same thing and, it, and and a lot of times um, I'll get messages from people who want to buy a knife or something like that and then I'm not responding fast enough so I, I totally understand but back to organization you know your work I mean when it comes to the Damascus that you make the knives that you make the decisions that you make I mean, you're you have a, you're a notch above in regards to what a lot of people are doing, and I think that I really, really spent a lot of time looking at your work and thinking about your work, and really having this um, kind of like a, I was interested in in looking at the way you make your Damascus, and I the funny thing is, is to me, I know that I don't do work with a lot of Damascus, and a lot of that's because I feel like I'm not ready. I feel like I feel like I still need to be working as a knife maker to be a better knife maker than just than then to jump into something else. When I see your work and a lot of your work is what's referred to as mosaic Damascus. Part of me feels like there should be a better uh, description of what you're doing because your work is more than when I think of mosaic, I think of tiles or, you know, tiles put together and, and forming this bigger picture. But when I look at your work, I was talking to my wife about it. We were saying that there's a kaleidoscopic effect in, in the way the Damascus in your knives work. And I've almost felt like kaleidoscope or kaleidoscopic Damascus is kind of a better description of your work. Well, that's a whole pile of interesting thoughts to respond to. And frankly, I'm flattered that you've Put that a much that much amount of uh, thought into it. Uh, I, I totally get what you're saying. Um, I mean, there's mosaic Damascus, and there's Damascus, and then there's and then there's mosaic Damascus. Um, it, it all there's such a huge range of expression possible, both in terms of the patterns you can achieve and and the interpretation of patterns that you'll find from one maker to another. Um, like I can make I can make a pattern based upon a set of techniques and another guy can make the same pattern based on the same set of techniques and yet the results from me to him or her will will end up having a completely different feel. Right. Um so in terms of of what I do, uh I can I can definitely dig the, the kaleidoscopic thing that you're you're kind of expressing it as I like to I like to have kind of a sense of overarching aesthetics in my Damascus, like i.e. it's not just such and such a, a pattern or a technique right. that I'm using or I've achieved, but rather it's I'm thinking about aesthetics on a different level as well, like uh, pattern density, uh, pattern resolution. Um, is it accessible, you know, for somebody that doesn't know a lot about Damascus? Are they going to enjoy it? Um, does it have an overall sense of darkness or lightness and and which would better suit the pattern you know and and furthermore you know developing a vocabulary of patterns and patterning techniques and then kind of yeah. using them to play off of each other for for contrast within an overall composition if that makes sense it makes sense and the way i hear you speaking is 
what really sings to me because I, as a, you know, art major sculptor, I like, I love it when knife makers and bladesmiths talk about their work in a manner that they have complete command over what they're trying to accomplish. And the fact that you're thinking about these things, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Actually, I was going to talk to you about your latest. If you go to guys, if you go on Instagram, you're following Salem Straub. You don't even have that. You don't even have to ask me. You know, I know you're there. The last two chef knives you did were so fascinating to me because when I, in, when in terms of looking at the work as, as the whole body of the work, you have taken a different style of uh, Damascus and you've used it to make the S grind out for, for some of our listeners who are woodworkers, the S grind is where you, well, you describe what tell them, can you just, if you wouldn't mind giving a, the brief description of what an S grind is, and then I'll get back to my nonsense. Sure. Um, so an S grind, also known by some as a compound grind. Um, I like the term compound grind a little bit better because I feel S grind is maybe a subset of compound grinds, but the overall uh, concept is that you have a conventionally ground kitchen knife blade, which will often be a full flat grind or, or very slightly convex. And then you are adding subsequently a next grind, which is a very shallow hollow grind above a certain edge height shoulder on the blade. So um, it's creating a thin section higher up the knife blade away from the edge. Um, and while the edge section might be full flat grind or very, very slightly convex, typically it's only we're from three eighths to say five eighths from the edge to the, the shoulder of that conventional grind. And above that, you have a hollow on each side. And that's, uh, that serves a few functions. Um, number one is food release. And that's just, I mean, everyone's been there. You're cutting in the kitchen and you have like, you know, an entire potato sticking to one side of your blade because there's nothing to break that surface, um, the, the suction effect of that like damp vegetable sticking onto your blade. Well, right. when it has a shoulder to kind of peel it off the blade as it's riding up away from the edge, then they just kind of fall there and you don't find yourself chasing potato slices across the floor feeling like an idiot. And then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I have done more than once. Um, and then also it lightens the blade, which is also very nice. Uh, if you like light knives, I like light knives. I know not everyone does, but I mean, I make the kind of knives that that I like unless asked to do otherwise. Um, and then beyond that, uh, it it adds a little bit of an aesthetic as well. I feel it, it's a nice looking thing. Um, this is what I, I want to anything, touch on. With please, you. please let me know. No, that's that's the best. That's the best description of an S grind or compound grind I've heard. And I'm glad I asked you because Wait, I would have done it. I would have been like, uh, I wouldn't have been as good as yours. Can I interject just for a second? Because Please. I, I, I realized I forgot one thing, and that is, and this is something our esteemed colleague Mareko touches on frequently, frequently is that um, it reduces, reduces cutting drag, i.e. the friction of whatever piece of produce or whatever you're going through dragging on the blade because there's less surface contact right. with a compound grind. Um, for that food to stick to and then actually put a friction force on the knife that you then feel as as added energy you're having to expend to cut. So there, there, now I'm done. Once again, you did it. 
Now, here's what's interesting to me. And I first, I, you know, when I, went, when I went to culinary school and I was dealing with professional chefs, I'd never really heard about friction, uh, 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 food release. Food release wasn't something that we'd ever really, I'd ever even, anyone, any chef I'd ever met or cook I'd ever met said that that's what mattered to them. And it was interesting to me because the, the, the compound grind, S grind for uh, culinary knives is something so interesting, but it always seemed to me that it could be an addition. You know, you, you could almost, if you're making a knife, you could almost put an S grind, almost. Generally speaking, you could put an S grind on almost any knife. Almost. Sure. You know, you could get it like a, you know, you can get a crummy knife at the, at the supermarket and then you can put S grind on it. Totally. And it made me wonder if it was like intrinsic to the knife itself. Now, getting back to your work, the last two knives especially, you have created a design that focuses on the connection between the Damascus and the S-Grind. So that on the last two chef knives you have, there's like a, I don't know, you know better than I do, a half inch, five eighths bar of a, of a much more, uh, much more high resolution contrast, thicker colored, yeah. um, thicker contrast um, Damascus that just ends at the end of the, of the S grind. And what that does is to me, what was, it was amazing because it made the Damascus something completely different. It made it not just a pattern, but it, it also gave this relevancy to the S grind. It would, the S grind was a connection between the steel itself and the Damascus. And for me, a lot of times when I think about this stuff sculpturally and boy, I know some of my, some of the listeners are like, yo, when are you going to tell some dick jokes? Trust me. Well, maybe hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> that, but the connection between the steel itself and the Damascus pattern, I don't see anyone else thinking about those decisions. And it's one thing that really, really st struck with me. Well, I, I do really enjoy that. Uh, frankly, sometimes that's just a matter of serendipity. At least it was at first, where I'd be like, I mean, I, I just like making mosaic Damascus pieces that have an edge bar anyway. Right. Um, but then when I began compound grinding pieces like that, I would notice like, hey, the compound grind kind of lines up with the the uh, seam where the edge bar welds onto the tiles right now. And that's, yeah. that's also pretty cool. And I've gotten better at exploiting that, that coincidence. But, it's, it kind of, but it's like, it, go ahead, sorry. It's as if it presents the edge bar a little bit. It pushes it out there a little bit. It, it activates, to me, it activates the, the S grind and it also makes the S grind uh, important. Like there's a sculptural, I, I'm talking about this as a, you know, almost like a sculptural piece, which I'm loath to do. But the, the fact remains is, is like decisions, you know, especially when you're talking about sculpture, decisions have to have, have consequences in reasoning. You know, a lot of times in S-Grind, there's almost like, I mean, you could just make a decision, like I said, you could make a decision at the end, you could make your knife and say, you know what, this would be pretty slick with an S-Grind, and then throw the S-Grind in as an afterthought. But when you put these edge bars on the bottom, and then you have them connect to the, the S-Grind, it's a, there's a deep understanding in regards to your, the organization of your work. And it's like, I just wanted you to know I'm watching. I'm very, very, uh, I'm fascinated by the ability to create the connection between the steel itself and the relevancy between the, the, the design. Not to mention, personally, I think that, you know, the integral knife is really the blacksmith's knife because it's hard to do it without forging it. It's hard to do it 
without yes. creating a relationship between the bolster and the handle. Yes. It's one of those things to me that really makes it about the blacksmith's, you know, process. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you can make an integral knife by the stock removal method, and some guys have gotten well-known for doing that, Edmund Davidson, um, for instance, but he has got to be starting with a huge chunk of stainless steel and just whittling right. on it to insane degree to get what he gets. Um, I, I definitely prefer, you know, that kind of, it speaks to the movement of forging and plasticity of the material that you're able to create something like that, especially in Damascus and especially in Mosaic Damascus. So I'm just going to back up a little bit and I want to find out you, when you grew up, when you were younger, you grew up in out West, I'd imagine. Yep. Were you, this is, this podcast has turned into like, I, I find, I, 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 I tend to not talk about like tools that people have and things that people have, because I'm noticing that, especially with the listeners, they're, they all have a connection in regards to we're making something, but it doesn't matter if you're in your shop or in your garage or in your basement or a big shop or something like that. We're, we all have these kind of, there's a lot of similarities based on how we get to where we are. So a lot of times when I speak to a lot of the guys who come on these podcasts, there's always this, as a youth, there's this, the needing to make stuff or, or kind of like the satisfaction of creating stuff. Were you very creative as a child? Yeah. Um, you know, I've listened to a fair amount of your episodes and I do really appreciate that about your interview style where it's not, I mean, we, we all know tons about each other's work as makers if we're connected into the Instagram or, or a YouTube or whatever it may be community, but it's much more interesting to me to get a snapshot of, you know, where's a maker coming from yeah. uh, on a personal level. And and I do have a lot of simil similarities with a lot of makers in that regard. I, I, did, um, I did have some creative pursuits as a kid and then, and then throughout my teenage years and everything like that. Um, but then a lot of dissimilarity as well, too. Yeah, of course. We're all, I mean, we're all, everyone has a different, a different, you know, reasoning. Right. I, I'm fascinated by everyone's, you know, the, the almost there's, I'm, part of me is looking for like this spark, you know, of sure. way, how, because I, what the other thing about this podcast is I really want to highlight every person as unique people. And, you know, once in a while you'll hear stuff like uh, I've seen messages from people saying, you know, if I had those equipment, that equipment, I could do the same thing as you. And oh, I always sure. and I always in my mind, I know, well, that's not true. I mean, I know people with like millions of dollars worth of equipment that just don't do anything with them. So I, I don't I, I really am far more interested in the person stripped back from, you know, what they have and, you know, and, and find out where they came from. Oh, so, for sure. I mean, that interests me very much. I mean, and it, and it makes it a little bit more relatable, too, you know. It does. Yeah. I mean, I think that people have an unfortunate way that I've observed of disenfranchising themselves of of potential. They yeah. they like to tell myths about themselves and repeat things like, oh, I'm not good at math or or like I could never make that or I could never you know, learn how to play a musical instrument or anything like I'm not talented in that way and stuff. And I think that it does a disservice to the amount of work that it takes even a talented person um, to really achieve high levels at, at disciplines. Um, but it also mm. does, does it a disservice to whatever person is uttering such a thing. It, people need to believe in themselves more. Unfortunately, I, if you want to talk about like an early spark, my parents were very good about empowering me to understand that I could do things 
and that I could I could figure out things on my own. I could think for myself. Um, I was homeschooled until the fourth grade, so I really got a lot of early time with my parents. And my wow. dad had he had a workshop in the basement. He's he was always a woodworker when I was growing up, and he actually had an art degree. He he got a bachelor's in fine arts. Um, on the GI Bill, he nearly missed Vietnam. He was in the Army, and he got out of there and got a Bachelor in Fine Arts in the Bay Area, California. And uh, he was a extremely talented, you know, oil painter. I mean, I have huh. a, a self-portrait of him that he did that hangs on my wall. I have a small gallery of his work. Um, and it is, it's just incredible talent to look at. And he painted it when he was finishing high school, I believe, I, I can't fathom ever being able to paint that well. That's not where my strengths lie. I mean, I know I just said not to do that, but I'm also <laughs> pretty right. good at I'm pretty good at being frank with myself, <laughs> I, I hope, about you know where my talents really lie towards. Well, um, it's under, totally understandable. So he'd be he'd be you know making a chest of drawers in the basement out of some plywood or whatever because frankly, we couldn't really afford furniture and and uh, building materials used to be a lot cheaper, but also because he needed a he just worked orchard jobs, agriculture, menial work. What he did for work did not matter to him as much as what he was able to do to do at home. Hmm. You know, creative outputs and and having a family at home and putting energy into that. And uh, and so he'd come home dog tired, but later he'd be working on a canvas downstairs or something, or uh, he'd be sketching or he'd be making something with wood. And from a wow. young age, I can remember just being down there in the shop with him and. I kind of had the run of the the nuts and bolts bins and stuff to just, you know, I, I would be pawing through there looking for a nut to fit this other bolt to come up with some odd thing that I, I don't know what I was even making anymore. But I remember having fun down there where he'd turn me loose with a chunk of wood on his bench grinder and I'd get the wheel all clogged up with wood, you know. Uh, but I never put my eye out and they were pretty good uh, with trusting me about things like that. and And so there was that. And then beyond that, they just put a ton of work into teaching me the language arts well, teaching me how to read, self-educate. I mean, go ahead and find my own books that I was interested in reading and things like that. Hmm. Um, so that helped me a little bit more with just being able to, to think things through, I feel. And then Legos, I mean, and we're not talking about like, Let's buy the let's buy the kid the new castle Lego set. He's gonna put it together right. once and and then and that's gonna be it. They would buy me like the Techniques Legos, which are very much about gears and shafts and power transmission, belt drives, a little electric motors and pneumatics and stuff. And that was always a ton of fun for me too. So it kind of helped me figure out um, a base level of of mechanics as well. I think. What kind of if you don't mind me asking, what kind of paintings was your father making? Because you know, uh, he would when, do you, when you talk about, especially when you talk about yeah. some, you know, someone who's taken art classes and ha yeah. has a degree in fine arts, they have a, a very. Sometimes they mostly have a very clear direction. I don't think people realize that you know you don't just paint anything and everything. You have kind of like no. a direction. What do you no. think his direction was? His direction was. I've heard him say before that art school ruined art for him. I, from what I can tell there was a heavy um, commercial component that was that was really impressed upon students in that time and place where hmm. 
they tried to prepare you for a career as an artist, and a lot of the time that meant doing commercial art, you know, ad work and stuff like that. Sure. And he wasn't into that. He he was more like the the starving artist, you know, passionate type, and and uh, he identified with you know Van Gogh and and guys like that, um, who who really would try to paint portraits with a personality that you can see you could see in them or or landscapes that really showed the play of light things like that um and then he he got a heavy interest in surrealism at some point too he was he was into guys like dali but he wasn't trying to you know copy the style he was trying to do his right. own own thing which was a little cubist at times i think but frankly i'm not i'm not really well educated enough in fine art to to put a fine point on what his style was i do know that it was Technically very proficient, very very impressive to me to this day. So he, when he would, because I, I, I get this John Steinbeck thing going, like Grapes of Wrath, like your dad's coming back from, you know, working wherever, and then he's just like, he's got to go down and he's he he, he, un, he unleashes the passion on the on the paint on the paint canvas. And I'm only saying this because my my father, and it's interesting you say that because my father went to art school. Uh, from the GI Bill, he served in World War II, and then with the GI Bill, he went wow. to Parsons School of Design and became a. He was a paint. He actually learned painting in France. He sp spent some time in France, and he was an exceptional painter on really one thing, and that was city landscapes. Like wow. he could paint a street and buildings and architecture beautifully, but the nice. one thing was he couldn't do people at all. So like actually when he died and we were meeting with the rabbi to kind of explain him and I really he I was the only one who had like a grasp of what he was doing. I really tried to set the tone in regards to the kind of person he was based on his paintings. And the funny thing is I was to say that I think that there's something to to the fact that he always did the and then he, towards the end of his life he was uh, he spent a lot of time in Mexico painting cityscapes in uh, San Miguel um Mexico and about San Miguel de Allende and and sure. Even to the end, he would paint these these cityscapes, but when it comes to a person standing there, it was like a stick figure. Like he had this, like when you look at the work itself, you almost see like this, you know, detachment from people. Like it was almost like I a can't. It was a strange thing, but I'm fascinated by the the children of artists because there's definitely like you end up getting this uh, secondary rush from getting them seeing them fired up and making something i would think yes. that that would be very inspiring to you it really was and i i mean I, I have a brother and a sister who are older than me and and we all share the same view that he could have been um a, a successful if not you know famous artist i mean his his work has its own quality um of course everyone's family who's who's got an artist in the family probably thinks that about them but but uh I refuse to apologize for my belief on his behalf. You, you have a connection. <laughs> you have a strong connection with his work, which is important. I mean, it's like you were, it wasn't like, you know, some, your, your dad was going out for like, you know, what is it called? Drink and draw, you know, right. down at this, down at the well, place and like, you know, painting like a, you know, BC right. with a margarita. But, but so the other component, which I also really identify with, um, is there's this real darkness to his art. Um, hmm. The self-portrait, that I, I mentioned just a bit ago. It's as if he painted it. I, if it was, if the room that he sat and painted himself in was as dark as that painting looks, I don't see how he managed to have enough light to paint the painting because it looks as mm. if he's, it's almost like 
it's almost like him in Sith mode where he's he's half completely oh, yeah. in shadow, you know? Hmm. And there's an, even a darkness in the one eye of his that you can see in the picture. And then, <clears throat> like I say, he he was alienated to the commercial art world. And so I think he started out thinking maybe he would like... He loved it so much that he thought maybe he would make a career out of it. But in the end, I think he got disenchanted with the whole thing and, and just remained a, a painter on his own time in his basement hmm. while work, working jobs and raising a family. But that's the ultimate... That's the ultimate... I mean, you know, the, what I tell people about being an artist or being a sculptor is, is like, you have to, you have to want it so bad that if you're on a deserted island with no hope of rescue, you're compelled to do it. I mean, that's really, without anyone seeing it, without anybody doing it, you're just, you're compelled. I mean, that's the compulsion of what we do. You know, a lot, a lot of times it's like, it is this compulsion for the manifestation of your, a reflection of your ideas, you know, you know, in a thing. And I, and you I don't totally feel understand right. that. You don't feel right unless you can create in some way. Um, to the point where I, you're on vacation, you're pacing the floors. Go ahead. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Uh, absolutely. Um, I've So the other thing is coming up um, more into my teenage years, I hadn't, I mean, of course, I'm not like going to make a career out of just bolting random stuff together in my dad's basement. I, I mean, it just progressed to where I found new things that I would kind of fall in love with doing. Um, at the age of 12 or 13, I, I um, really caught into rock and roll, right? And my big brother and sister were already, they'd moved out. They were rock and roll gigging musicians. We have a, a, a big music tradition in our family too. Hmm. Um, and so I wanted to be like them. And, and I was going to be a drummer. I got my first drum set and I, I've always put a lot of work into my drumming as well. Um, it's kind of a... I wouldn't even say a secondary passion. It's just a passion of mine that never, it never manifested into a career because I just didn't make those moves at the right time. Hmm. Um, but I, I love it as much, but in a different way, um, as I do knife making. And uh, skateboarding was a big thing for me too. I, I skateboarded throughout my teenage years and, and very much technically trying to get better and better, not, not, just skating around town. I mean, I'm, I'm over here trying to kickflip a bigger set of stairs all the time and stuff. Um, and I still, I still skate to You're this day. I'm just a little bit more afraid of breaking my oh, arm really? now than I used to be. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. I don't blame yeah. you. That's so it sounds like, I mean, it just sounds like you you had, you had parents who were very uh, supportive of your creative endeavors. I mean, the fact that everyone had a mu musical, you know, outlet was just, you know, it was extraordinary. And that was another thing that they taught me was, um, you know, they got me a guitar when I was little and started to teach me basic little songs, and it was just a part of my early education. Hmm. So as you're getting older, what's what did, you're going through high school? What did you think you wanted to do? Well, those years were very troubled for me. I um. So my parents did a great job on the front of of educating me and showing me lots of love. But on the other hand, um, we, part of the reason I was homeschooled was, uh, they're very anti-worldly, shall we say, fundamentalist Christian people. Hmm. And so I, I was raised in that environment, very traditional, uh, evangelical Christian, although we didn't use that word at that point. 
households bear the rod, spoil the child, all that, all that yeah. kind of thing. And and it, you know, it works for some kids. Maybe I don't, I don't know. I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to speak for anyone else, but it sure, it sure didn't work for me. And so, I came out of those years and into public school with some anger and alienation already, and a big rebellious streak. Um, and again, I'm hmm. not trying to blame my my parents for whatever bad decisions no. I made, but looking back, you know, through the years, things start to click a little bit more. The more you try to understand about yourself and how you got to to where you are today, and this is this is my best understanding at this point uh, of the trajectory of those years. But basically, it led to where I was. I was a big, um, what, what do you want to say, like a discipline problem, starting in as early as fifth grade and hell I got I got kicked out of the sixth grade for flashing a switchblade around on the playground I, that was that was the first Jesus. time I was arrested that is a- 12 years old <laughs> a- oh man yeah 12 years old man I was arrested and fingerprinted um right out of the class right out of the principal's office and, and uh expelled you know oh so I was I, I was doing these things at this age that had real world like grown-up consequences, and yet I was 12 years old, so I didn't really understand. I didn't really understand it. And and it became to the point where it was like, it was even more, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and whatever you try to do to me to punish me for doing what I want to do, I can take it. Like, is that all you got? It was it was oh. a very rebellious thing, and it was a feedback loop I got into. And, and so I struggled, you know, I got a... I got sent over to live with my brother and sister uh, at the age of 14 because I was just getting in too much trouble in the little town that I grew up in. So I lived out there with them in their band house. They were trying to make it big as a rock band, and they were gigging every weekend and stuff. And so on one hand, it was just like quite an environment for me to find myself in as a 14-year-old. Uh, very permissive and, and very exciting in ways. And, and it was great for my drumming, I'll say that. But I went to like a, a year and a half of alternative high school and then I dropped out first day of 11th grade, never went back. Hmm. Uh, I just can because... only imagine that if, if you, li- I'm sorry for interrupting, I can only imagine that if you're no, living in a all. home that's very strict, you're living in a home that's very strict and then you get sent to your brother and sister who are, you know, starting a band you you yes. feel a degree of like okay now i can relax a little bit sure well and they were 10 years older than me so during my early years it was it was like being an only child but also very sheltered right. and so i didn't really understand like tv culture and and popular culture that other kids had had been having since kindergarten or earlier when i got in there it was culture shock for me and so that was tough too um, and I was better educated than, than all of the kids that I got into fourth grade with by a couple of years. So I was bored to tears. I didn't want to mm-hmm. do my homework. And f- I've often theorized that I had an attention deficit related disorder, or maybe I'm very lightly autism spectrum or something, because there's just certain things about me that my attention span doesn't do well in a classroom environment or didn't then. Anyway, it all added up to where I, I just didn't do well with school. I hated it. And like I say, I ended up dropping out after uh, 10th grade. And uh, so all I was doing throughout those years was, you know, for personal enjoyment was skateboarding, 
still and playing music. So I thought at that point probably that I was going to be a professional musician when I grew up. Making things wasn't really on my horizon in those years. Cool. And uh, so from 10th grade, I just uh, I couch surfed around. My uh, my sister and her husband at the time broke up, but the husband, my ex uh, brother in law, I guess you would say, was was very much kind of a father figure for me in those days, and he got me out of juvie one time, so I went to live with him for a little while. And what uh, did you go to juvie for? Oh, uh, I was picked up for uh, resisting arrest malicious mischief assault and i was gosh i was running away from probate i'd been run away from probation for six months at that point so they weren't letting me go when they caught me that time everyone but, <laughs> listening to this is shocked because i mean you didn't this is this is, seems like a, a different person than what it, we're it, used to it is it is but it's what i came from and and so i mean in a way it's been forever and in another way, I'm still that person. I, I can still understand the person that was making those decisions at that point. Um, hmm. It's just been a game ever since then of trying to make it a strength rather than, than something I look back on with regret, which I don't. I you think know, that's we're, important. We're all, we're all unique individuals, and that's just kind of part of, of what built me, really. Yeah, for sure. Totally, a hundred percent. I th I find that I th I find like that a lot of times, especially with the people I've been talking to, and then my, myself is the idea of making something, regardless of whatever it is. It's this visual, it's this visual uh, object, or whatever, or something that you've manifested that sh that shows that you're disciplined enough to actually like being normal. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah, something about sure. it, like you 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 have this representation of like, all right, these aren't going very well, but I made this and it came from somewhere. It didn't come from like, it didn't come from chaos. It came from like making a decision. It's an attempt to impose order, um, and I think yes. the degree to which I I attempt to impose order on things to this day is somewhat a legacy of of just the sheer chaos that I came out of. Um. I've, I've often hmm. felt looking back on those years, like, like I was swimming, but I couldn't swim yet. I was, I was barely managing to tread water and keep my head above water and not drown while I was, you know, really trying to find out like, who am I? Why do I even want to live? Um, <laughs> the world just seemed very big, complex and dark to me. Yeah. And, I think I there was imagine. something, there was always something within me, and, and it runs in my family, um, very much anxiety, uh, depressive, a depressive streak. Mm. And uh, my, you know, my siblings have had to deal with it, and it comes down through my family. Like my great-grandma Nina was somewhat infamous in our family for having proclaimed that every straw eventually goes insane. <laughs> Whatever she meant by that, but we all we all believed it to the to the degree that we would parrot it. You know what I'm saying? Wow! So there must be you got history. Your family's got some history. Oh, totally. But they're all, they're all very creative people, and I, I think that the two come bundled, and it's it's difficult for some of us to separate them and to make use of the creativity while while controlling the negativity. Right. 
So how did you pull yourself into like, how did you pull yourself out of this, this life of, of like, you know, I can only imagine that if, the more trouble you're getting into, the more you think, well, this isn't, this is just getting worse and worse. I, I, this is, this is going to be my life. Yeah. I, uh, I really didn't know where I was going. I, I, even now, I mean, it's hard for me to predict what I'll be doing next year on a certain level, but in a much more comfortable way. Uh, um, yeah. Just, just that's the nature of self-employment, right? And that's the nature of this modern world with things like pandemics and what have you. I'm just talking um, about. I'm talking about like you're like you're you're getting out of being antisocial. Like you are having this moment of chaotic antisocial behavior. Oh, absolutely. And then, so and then then all of a sudden you pull yourself out of it. Yeah. Well, I mean. I, I party a lot and, you know, I, I tried to self-medicate in various damaging ways uh, because I, I was just missing some some kind of euphoria or some some feeling of self-worth or just, just anything positive, you know, a little bit of light. And thankfully, my family never gave up on me. My brother and sister were always there for me, very supportive of me. But it's very difficult to help a person that is not wanting to help themselves at at whatever point it's impossible so yeah 100 percent. i mean the only person that can help you is yourself and all you got to do with a person like that or or like i was is just help them actively like not die for a while or or whatever yeah. while they hopefully sort it out or or just hope that you know out of 500 things you tell them that one thing is going to be that right thing that gets between their ears and makes some little difference if you don't mind me anyway. asking, was that something you were thinking yourself? Go ahead. I mean, was that something you were thinking yourself? No, I, I, I didn't. I didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground. Oh, but I mean, you I understand. But I mean, were you really worried about whether or not you were going to like, you know, keep living or not? A couple times. Yeah, I think so. Wow, that's heavy. Um, I mean, I certainly could have. I was hitchhiking around the Western United States at the age of sixteen. Sometimes alone, sometimes with friends, but you know, I I slept in Santa Cruz, California by myself under bridges and stuff at the age of sixteen for two weeks, you know, no friends, nothing. Just trying to make it work, sleeping on the beach too. Wow. I I was I'm, I was I'm go ahead, I'm sorry for interrupting. I, I don't know what it was. it was as if I was trying to struggling to escape a cage or something that I'd put myself hmm. in. But at any rate, so I kind of got through all that and then uh, came back came back up to Washington, reconnected with family a little bit, reconnected with some friends, was couch surfing around. And, and uh, after a while, my girlfriend at the time, um, her stepfather was, he's just a, a good old boy, like construction worker, um, ex-Navy, biker type, you know, not like, not like a one percenter, but definitely rode his Harley around and stuff. He took an interest. He, he saw that I needed some direction and, and he, he put himself, he put himself out there for me. He hired me on as a laborer to roof with him, gave me a chance. And, uh, and I took to the work right away. You know, I, I always grew up seeing my dad and mom just, just both work themselves tired every day. And, and I had that as an example. And, and that was kind of one of the many things that stayed with me good from from that example that they set, that legacy of theirs. 
um, was was an appreciation for, for work ethic. And once I really started working and, and roofing and things like that and working for some of his buddies just on pickup jobs or whatever, um, I took to it. You know, I was like, oh, hey, here's positive reinforcement for like doing a good job. This is this is way better than what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah. Like I can I can do this. And then and then I, I started, you know, wanting to kind of go a little bit more um, conventional, maybe get a full time job and try to get myself into some kind of a grown up living situation and and all that kind of thing at, a, at the ages of 18, 19. And uh, he gave me a recommendation for a place called Express Personnel Services. That's a staffing agency. And so I just went there, and I was just kind of a, a laborer for hire, mercenary worker for uh, for like a year, and they just sent me a bunch of different places. I worked at like fish canneries, and I built uh, kayaks of all things at hmm. another place. And I worked in a I worked in a lot of food factories late nights, you know, twelve hour shifts in a hairnet, just whatever they could throw at me. Always trying to do a, a good job and get recommended for the next thing. And that kind of did a lot the- to. Sorry. Do you Go think ahead. that the discipline and do you think that the sending you sending you to these places and being involved and having this constant a little bit everything's a little bit different, but you're getting a degree of safety. Yes. Yes. Very much. I had I had been kind of just I'd been flailing just trying to find something solid to grab onto. Right. And 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 work was that thing. And that first guy that threw me that first roofing job and gave me a chance to show that that I could succeed um, really turned it around for me. I'm I'm grateful to him to this day. Uh, you know, if he's listening, that's Dave Pfeiffer. Um, big ups to you, sir. Dave Pfeiffer. Yep. Shout out to Dave Pfeiffer. Damn, that's amazing. So you're doing all these jobs, the cannery and everything like that. What gets you to Hawaii? <sighs> okay. So I'm working in the cannery and stuff when I'm 19. And then uh, and then I worked uh, construction over that summer. And then what happened was uh, my parents bought a piece of remote property out here in eastern Washington State. They'd been saving up for a while. They're They're pretty much... They're, they're heavy critics of American society, status quo society. They see it as Babylon. Again, they're, they're quite religious, so they wanted to get away from it. And, and so they bought this piece of property that had been saving up forever, and they wanted to go out and garden on it and build a, a cabin and things like that. They'd done it before back in the 70s, so they just wanted to get back to that. So here I am knowing a little bit about construction, loving to work, I was tired. I would, I'd been doing all this stuff basically centered around Bellingham, Washington, and uh, which is a beautiful city. Don't ever let anyone tell you that it's not. Um, and I, I, was, I was over the scene there. I wanted to leave. I wanted to get out to nature, and I wanted to you know build something, maybe get some solitude. And so I went out there to help them build uh, a log home for them to live on on that property. And... Uh, and that was off the grid. It was 40 miles from town and and way off the grid. We're talking about way out on some dirt road, and we went to town like every two weeks. Um, 
and then we would just stay out there and cut logs. And we did the whole thing. We hand dug a full basement, me and my dad, hmm. um, you know, with wheelbarrows and shovels. And, yeah. uh, and then, we, then we poured the entire basement with slip forms we built ourselves, mixing it all with a concrete mixer. I mean, just very spending the least amount of money possible and putting in the most manual labor possible to build a full-on log home. And, uh, yeah, it took us three summers, and every winter I would leave, and I would go back to Bellingham, and I would work whatever jobs for the staffing agency or whatever construction work I could find and just live in some some dump with friends or whatever. And, uh, and then I would come back the next spring and start all over again. And so ultimately, we... Uh, we did manage to build a pretty nice two-story log home on a full basement. And uh, during that last year of construction, my sister-in-law, she was working at um, Community Access Nonprofit for Developmentally Disabled Adults at the time. She was the director of this company, and she hired on this, this young lady um, just from a random encounter at the mall. And this was my wife-to-be. She was working at... She was working in the mall at a jewelry kiosk selling jewelry and, and just struck up a conversation randomly with, with my sister-in-law. And my sister-in-law was like, hey, we need somebody. Would you like to come work for us? And so they hired her on, and my sister-in-law was like, hey, you, you might like my brother-in-law. You guys share a lot of the same interests. So she set us up on a blind date. And uh, it was a genius move. I mean, uh, it, it just worked out. This... I mean, when I met her, she was stunning, gorgeous, and uh, and smart, and we we shared a lot of the same interests, but also kind of like the the same uh, darkness. She'd been a lot through a lot of stuff too, hmm. and uh, and I I feel like she was she was grasping at straws a little bit too. I mean, and we kind of we kind of found more solid ground in each other. Yeah, and so. We were engaged within three months, living together within four months, and married six months after meeting. Wow. And she what was 21. I was 20. Yeah, she was 21. I was 22 at the point. And I think we both thought it was a little crazy as we were getting into it, but we were both very much like, at the same time, it, it, it sounds like a great idea. Let's just, let's just go for it and see what happens. And ever since then, we've we've really we've been through a lot of stuff together, and yet, yeah. never for a moment have I not ha- had real faith that we would continue to work out and be there for each other. That's amazing. Like we've been through stuff that you know I, a lot of other couples would break up, and we've had couple friends, and we've watched them break up time and time again around a, around us and we've emerged from the ashes you know un, relatively unscathed compared to just tons of other friends that we've had and and whatever con- connection that is that we've had you know really uh really kind of affirmed my my personal belief in the institution of marriage as a worthwhile thing you mm. know which not everyone believes in this day and age but boy is it sure right sometimes well you you two are obviously cut from the same cloth you know, I think that that one, once again, it's finding the safety and security of of having someone who can empathize with what you've been through, and because they, they've been through the same thing. Well, not only that, like she could put up with me because she, she's already been through a lot of pain. 
you right. know. And we we were still the type of people that we were very good at inflicting pain upon people that we love in unthinking ways. And yet I think the degree to which we shared that trait helped us put up with it from each other long enough that we, we've been able to work past it, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, it makes 100% sense. I mean, you know, that's what empathy is. It's kind of under, having an understanding of, you know, what others have gone through and then seeing what you, seeing how, how you'd feel in that situation and then acting upon it, you know. So well, and that makes, furthermore makes is grace, I feel like grace is, is being able to act a certain way because you're in trouble or you don't understand things and having, having people continue to give you the benefit of the doubt or give you that leeway that you need while you're figuring it out. Right. Makes a lot of sense. hundred percent. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it sounds like your youth is really like trying to find, you know, almost like you're like a cork in the water and you're looking for some sort of, some sort of port, you know, something that would like, yeah, keep you, keep you afloat. And it sounds like your wife, wife was such a huge part of that you know, keeping you from going under. Very much so. Uh, my wife and just working with my hands. Uh, working yeah. with my hands was yeah, a huge clearly. thing that saved me. Clearly. So what gets you over to Hawaii? So, um, now you had asked that earlier, and I got onto the tangent about my wife because she's integral to... No, it's perfect. ...to me getting to Hawaii. So her, uh, her uncle was a contractor in Hawaii who owned a fire sprinkler fitting business, um, union fire sprinkler fitting business, and doing mostly new construction hotel work in Hawaii. And there was big, big building projects coming up in Hawaii in that time. It was before, you know, the 2007 debacle. So... So he was hiring, and uh, he wasn't finding enough Which young guys. Re refresh my memory. Refresh my memory. What debacle was that? Oh, oh seven, oh eight, uh, the housing market bubble. Okay. Bear Stearns. Okay. Okay. You know all, all that noise. Okay. The Great Recession, et cetera. So it was before all that, and and the housing market was still up, and construction was booming, and so there was these big projects of a new hotel building in in Hawaii, and uh, and so I expressed an interest. Let's go out there and and I'll just do more construction. I still wasn't well, no, that's not true. I was making knives at this point, but I had no idea that it would be my career. I I still just thought of it as a hobby. So we get out I, I get a job offer from our uncle and we just uproot and we move to Hawaii. And uh and I worked for her uncle's company for a year and a half. And that was a union company. So I am, I'm not cut out for union politics and I'm not really cut out for, or at least I wasn't at the time. I was still pretty immature for, for dealing with a lot of the stuff that I found myself having to process uh, right. job site politics and things like that. I love to go to work, do the work and do a good job and, and get an attaboy from the foreman, but I wasn't so good at, um, I wasn't so good at, at being politic with other bosses, um, taking guff and not being disrespectful in turn. Um, and I was drinking a lot in those days. And, and uh, 
I don't know if you've ever been a guy that that drank too much, but I sure have been at times, and it doesn't help you with with your job or with your boss. Yeah. So I can imagine. So yeah, for a number of reasons, my tenure with that company came to an end. Some of it was their fault, more of it was my fault, and uh, you know that's just been another thing that I've been able to to look back at over the years and kind of gain little 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 lessons from beginning to understand it more over time. But uh, so anyway, at, well, 2008 came around and that was really when the market crashed anyway and, and the bottom dropped out of the construction industry in Hawaii. And I found myself working as a sales associate on the floor of a, a hardware store on Oahu. And uh, basically just saving up. We were both saving up at that point to move home, to move back to Washington State because... I had a, a hmm. bad case of what they call island fever, which is where What's most that? of your families is most of your families back on the mainland, and it seems like you're you're kind of isolated in a place where not much is happening. That's that's relevant on a national national or or world scale, and you you feel a little confined. You feel like you're on an island that's getting smaller and smaller, even though it's a, a gorgeous place to live. It was wasted on me at the time, is how I would I would summarize it. And so, uh, and I wanted to get back to my roots anyway. I, I was born here, raised here in Eastern Washington in the Okanagan Valley. And it's just a part of me. I I don't really care to live anywhere else for a a long period of time at any rate. And so I just wanted to come back here and my parents were getting older and uh, my mom had gotten into an accident while I was, while I was over there working and I I couldn't fly back and, and be here. Well, my mom was in trouble, and that that really kind of hurt too. So I just wanted to come back. Hmm. So Hawaii, which sounded like this new start for you and your your new wife, just turned out to be like a just like a no, kind of like a nosedive into that. <laughs> it sounds like that wasn't really where you were. The plan obviously didn't work out the way you wanted it to. It was professionally, it was kind of a wash, but. It was great in a lot of other ways. And so there, there's that leg of the story, which is just us moving to Hawaii and why. But then there's the other leg of the story, which is I was already making knives at the time. And, uh, and a, lot of the, a lot of my experience in, in Hawaii really pushed me a lot farther towards choosing knives as a career path. So yeah. like if you go back to the inception of me making knives, we're talking uh, 2003. I was 20 years old. And uh, I, I, I was to meet my wife, Heather, the next year. But I was already out, I was off the grid, like I say, 40 miles. You couldn't just go to the hardware store for anything on a whim. And we, we didn't have much of anything out there to support our building project. Things would come up that we needed, and, uh, and it was either make them or spend the rest of the day driving to town and, like, a bunch of gas money to get one thing. So if we needed, like, a hinge for something or a latch or uh, log dogs, you know, I, if you're a guy that's built a log cabin before, you'll know that log dogs are super important. It's like a giant staple that you drive into logs to hold them into, in position with each other while you're marking them with a scribe to fit them to each other with a chainsaw. Well, sure. I had to make sets of those. You can't just buy those. I was making draw knives and uh, some chisels and things like that. Just out of leaf spring that I would find in scrap piles and, and stuff. And uh, 
a, an old coal forge. I built a coal forge out of a brake drum from a Datsun pickup and uh, the cabin fan from a Toyota pickup and like a radiator hose to connect most of the air. And then I was I would hike around the woods with a hatchet and a five-gallon bucket or two, and I would chip charcoal off of burnt slash piles that I would find. And then I would go home and I would I'd burn them in my charcoal forge, and I'd try to make things and usually fail because I didn't know anything about anything, but I was having fun. And that's on a, a railroad track anvil with some, I mean, a pair of tongs I made out of rebar that were just awful. And my only source of learning at the time was library books. I had uh, The Art of Blacksmithing by Alex Beeler and uh, The New Edge of the Anvil by Jack Andrews. And, sure. <clears throat> you know, the, yeah, there was a bunch of that good old literature. Oh, Practical Blacksmithing and, and Metalworking by Percy Blandford. That's a good one. You know, a bunch of this stuff. And I'd read about upsetting to get square corners, and I'd go out and try it. And it's way harder than it sounds, and I'd get frustrated and... But over time, I'd get a little bit better at it. My arm would get a little bit stronger. And so so really, I just kind of poured myself into that. That was my creative output when I was out there with all that solitude. Um, or I might just hike a day and just explore across these mountains that we lived in. It was just a, a very separate point in time in my life. So I did that. And then when I went back to Bellingham that first winter, of working out there, I dragged some of my smithing tools with me. And I was living in a, a hovel that later, it was condemned at the time, and then the year after I moved out, they bulldozed it to make room for new construction. It was in the closest thing Bellingham has to a ghetto, but my friend and I were out, out in an outbuilding in the backyard of that place, smithing, you know, in the middle of the winter on this ghetto equipment that I clodged together. So it, it's basically ever since then I've needed to have some sort of metalworking tools at my disposal in some sort of space of whatever size to work in, or else I I will go somewhat crazy. Do you think that that's because, you know, for me, I've always thought, especially with metalwork, that there's there's this sense of permanence. You know, steel is one of those things that even when I wasn't making, you know, knives or anything like that, I was just making steel sculpture, there was a permanence to it that gave you this sense of, like, mass it gave you a sense of like timelessness the same as something that's like there's a permanence to it I, I wonder if there's something to that oh there's there's a huge amount to that um i think that i grew up watching wood get worked you can run it through a table saw you know if you drive a nail through it too close to the end of a board you'll split the board then you're stuck with something that you can't weld back together. Wood has its limitations. It's easier to work in ways. I mean, no disrespect to the woodworking, woodworking community. It's also super difficult to work wood. But, you know, to work metal, you have to harness the power of, like, arc welding, machines that weigh tremendous amounts to be able to even hold the work that you're trying to do to cut with, things like that. It, it's just this separate degree of... It's almost like magic. Because when you grow up just surrounded by metal objects that you take for granted, cars, buildings, handrails, whatever it may be, they seem so, as you say, permanent. A metal thing is is just going to be what it's going to be, and there's very little that you can do to change that unless you hit it with a bigger metal object. But once you get into right. the craft of learning how to affect things that are made out of metal in, in a deliberate way, it's super empowering. Like all of a sudden I can cut two pieces of metal 
with a bandsaw or chop saw or whatever. And then if, if I cut it wrong, I can just weld it back together and cut it different again. Right. There, metal working is unlike anything else in that way. And, and then the other thing is, I mean, there's permanence just in the sense of the longevity that metal items have. Um, you know, swords that you can find from thousands of years ago that have been buried in, under the right circumstances uh, are almost untouched sometimes. It's, it's pretty incredible. But I see, I see that permanence in regards to your life. Like I'm almost seeing it like they're these. It's like a buoy. It's I'm still going back to this fact that you're just like you're still trying to find yourself. And I feel like this, you know, the metalwork maybe has this kind of like allusion to permanence that's giving you a degree of security. You know. Well, there's that. Uh, in an interview years ago on Bladesmith's forum, I, I was trying to answer a question someone put to me and it kind of clicked at that moment was that I spent most of my formative years rebelling against authority and then I found in metal a medium that imposes true authority upon the person who tries to work it metal is not just going to change because you want it to and it's never going to do anything that is not intrinsic to its nature it imposes its will upon you while you impose your will upon it um and, and no matter how you, you might, <laughs> if you screw up a workpiece, it doesn't matter if you throw it across the shop or you're bloody your hands trying to punch it or whatever stupid thing you might do in anger, it's not going to make any difference. That thing is just going to be what it is, and that's a form of authority that I finally had the grace enough to kind of bow to. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. That's interesting. It's like it's like um, it's a natural authority. It isn't like this societal authority. I I can only imagine what it was like. You know, I when you talk when you were talking about those job sites, I was when I was the one of the last jobs I was on a uh, we were on these union non union shop uh, job sites, and I really didn't. I got along well with the the foreman, but the rest of the guys they didn't like that I was there because I wasn't in the union and it made it very difficult. And I just remember being like, I just kind of want to be left alone on this job site, just do my job and not have to deal with the people. So I can imagine that that's, that was very difficult for you. And then the fact that you have this ability to rely on, you know, the, um, the solitude, but then the real authority of working with metal, I would imagine it's like a much easier way to kind of like get back into, get back into your life. Absolutely. And as you say, um, solitude was a component of it. I've always done the very best at, at tasks where I can be left alone to just do it um, under my own, my own impetus. Uh, skateboarding, you know, is a very, it's a very solitary yep. pursuit if you want it to be. No one's telling you got to do anything. All it is is you telling yourself you want to land that trick today. So you're now you're you you have this the the setup you're back on the mainland how are you how is that how are the knives how are you trying to what are you trying to to build what are you what's finding you you happiness Okay so let me rewind just a little bit to Please. partway through Hawaii and there were a few times I feel like I'm not a big metaphysical guy but but I'm capable of believing sometimes in portents or omens in as much as I allow them to be. Um, okay. And so 
I had some of those moments in Hawaii, and and I I had uh, I had one day I was making knives actually quite a lot while I was there. I had my own kind of shop and a lean-to on the side of the house, and then later I had a shop that I would work in on the weekends uh, next to a Connex on the job side of all things. I had a forge out there, and I would take orders from from uh, other workers on the side, I would make hunting knives and uh, like pig hunting knives. You know, that's a big thing. Sure. In Hawaii, is I mean, they just hunt with dogs and knives. Right. And uh, and so I got an order from one of one of the fellow one of the journeymen for a pair of knives, and these were uh, hidden tang knives with one had white and one had black micarta handles, and they had nickel silver butt caps and guards, and I was making the blades out of cable Damascus, and they were gut hook knives. And don't ever ask me to make a gut hook knife anymore, by, by the way. But I was making, <laughs> I was making them at the time. And, uh, and out of cable Damascus, I, w- I would make Damascus out of the tension cable from, from the concrete decks that were getting poured at work. We, we, lived in a, we were in a seismic zone, so they had to use tension cable. Anyway, um, I had one day where I was working over the weekend on that pair of knives for that guy up in my shop. And I just worked all day on those knives. Everything felt right, and the sun was shining outside, and I would walk outside, and I could see the ocean and, and feel that tropical breeze, and it was just such a day of, and nobody else was around that day. They were off doing other stuff, and I had it all to myself, and there was nothing nothing else in the world I would rather have been doing, and no other place I would have rather been than making knives right there at that moment, and I acknowledged that, and I felt like this is the happiest that I've ever been working is is today, and if I could have today be a model for what I could ultimately do with my working life, I would be happy. And, and I still think back to that day. So that there was that. Another time I went to a pawn shop in West Maui. We lived in West Maui for a while. And randomly in a case there, they had a Buster Wierenski dagger and a Corbett Sigmund knife. And those are two huge names from the old school knife industry. And pretty weird knives to be finding for sale in a glass case at a pawn shop in West Lahaina. Um, and, and finding those, I took them out. He let me look at them. And I, the presence that those pieces had, particularly that Warensky dagger, I felt like, I felt like if I wanted to, I could interpret them as having, having been there that day to also give me a sign. And I was having a bad day other than that, but that was a good part of my day, and I noticed it. And I mm. felt like that, that was Custom Knives calling to me again. So then we moved to Oahu. I wasn't working for that company anymore. I was working in the hardware store. And I was trying to make connections with some knife makers in Oahu. Well, who's the most famous knife maker on Oahu? It's uh, Ken Onion. So ah. I, look, I look in the back of the Knives Annual, and I see that Ken Onion lives on the same street as me. What? He lived on the same street as me. Hui Kelu street in Kaneohe, Hawaii, and he lived farther up the mountain than me. And so I said, well, I'm just going to, I think I called him first. I can't remember, but I know that I did go up there and I knocked on his door with a couple of the knives that I had made, introduced myself. You know, I'm so-and-so knife. I, I make knives and I wanted to, you know, come get your thoughts on these pieces or whatever. And Ken is an, an excellent guy for me to have met at that point. Or for anyone to meet at any point. He's, he's an awesome guy. Very generous. And he took me under his wing. He brought me into his shop. He honestly told me what he thought about my knives. 
the good things, the bad things. And he said, why don't you let me show you a few things? And so I lived on Oahu for another seven or eight months after that. And any spare time I could get, I went up to Ken's shop and I worked on my knives or I would sweep his floor or whatever I could do, hand sand some of his stuff. And, uh, and he showed me how to make a clean knife. There's what I was making up to that point were pretty cool knives sometimes, but they were, they were not clean knives at all. And I was making Damascus knives with a belt finish, you know, with rough scratches underneath and all flat grinds and gross plunges and all that kind of stuff. You know, I was very much doing self-taught work. I'd never had a teacher other than a book. And, uh, and then Ken just, he polished what I was doing and he showed me a lot of stuff. And he showed me how to make a liner lock folder and things like that. And it was, it was because of Ken that when I left Hawaii and we finally moved back to the mainland, I came back here to start making knives as a career. And I, I thought that I could do it. And uh, Ken is also, I mean, just for our listeners, I mean, Ken Onion, he, he's, a, he's a also, and besides that, he's a very well-known knife designer. Like he's legendary. designed culinary knives and and knives for I think CR cricket we call it cricket over here at Fader yeah, but yeah, um, I was you know he's too. designed knives for that and he's designed you know he's a very famous knife designer absolutely I mean going back to the 90s he really was at the forefront of the assisted opening folding knife craze he came up hmm. with speed safe and I don't know if you remember all those Kershaw leaks there were those knives with that like rainbow titanium a rainbow anodized handle finish um, all those Kershaw knives. Yeah, he got famous back then for those. And then he was working with CR, CRKT. And yeah, he, his his design sensibility is immediately recognizable. And it's it's had a huge influence on the knife industry at large, I think. And uh, yeah, for me to just wind up on the same street as him and for him to be that gracious to me um, was completely amazing. That's definitely an omen. Oh yeah, for sure. I went from... Again, I was I was flailing a little bit. I, I could take care of myself at that point, but I didn't really have a finished direction. But but Ken kind of gave that to me. You know what? Once interesting is is I when I interviewed Mareko two episodes ago, two or three episodes ago, he talked about how if he hadn't taken a salsa dancing class, that his teacher and ultimate partner, salsa dancing partner, wouldn't have introduced him to. Bob Kramer. I find these little moments in in your life, these like incredible forks, these forks in your road, these beacons. It's like it's coming to a like this incredible beacon milestone in your life. They're just they're amazing. That's incredible. Oh yes. And what you got what you have to hope for is that you're ready for that thing to happen at that time or that right. you're capable of listening to it because I feel like things like that probably happen all the time to people and it's wasted. It's frightening to totally. think about. Yeah, I you know, mean, go if ahead. I'd gotten to Ken when I when I was twenty years old, it wouldn't have worked. Right. I wouldn't have been ready yet. You know, but you were it, willing. It just happened. You went to him right when it needed you were willing. to. Right. right. Amazing. All right, right, but it was just that right window in time. Yeah. And by the way, I I thought that uh, Mareko interview was great, and uh, and. Part of me, I listened to that interview, and there was a lot of honesty and like courage and heart 
in in Morocco's yeah. interview and and I kind of took a cue from that. I said I'm going to be a little bit more forthright about where I came from, you know, if we get into that territory with Jeff. Well, because, I pre- I you know, certainly Mor- appreciate Morocco showed that. Well, the the interesting thing about that was, you know, I had talked to him about coming on for a long time. I mean, we've been doing knife talk for three years, but I wanted him to be comfortable. And then he had made the decision. He had said to me, he's like, listen, I'm going to come on and I'm going to say some things that I'm not, I haven't been willing to say before. So I was appreciative, but I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to push him down that road. But it sure. ultimately, I'll tell you what, I got a lot of messages about how it helped people. So that I'm appreciative. And, and telling, hearing your story too is, you know, I think that a lot of people are going through very similar things. You know, we're in this solitary business where we're, we almost, it's almost like we're better off being on our own, you know, and, and it, and to have these moments of like clarity and having these moments of opportunities come your way. And then what do you do with these opportunities? And, and then, you know, you get a little bit, I get a little bit tingly when tingly, nervous, tingly, when I think of well, what could have happened if, you know, if Mareko never took that salsa dancing class, you know, where would, what would have been, what would he, you know, that was just such a moment in time that was like, it could have just didn't happen. It could not, it could have just not happened. You know, it's like, yeah. and then with yeah, yeah. you, you know, you were totally willing to see, to, you know, you were down the road. I mean, the, literally down the road from Ken Onion and you took this opportunity to broaden your horizons and it's just, you know, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I was, I was already pretty well cuckoo about knives and making them at that point. It's just, I, I didn't really believe in myself that I could make a career out because let's face it, you're, you're always talking about this. It is very difficult to have a career as a knife maker. Not everyone can make it work. I think it's difficult to do anything by yourself. I think it's difficult to be an entrepreneur when you've never done it before. That's true. But going back, I I mean, this was, uh, 2009, 2009, trying to make it as a knife maker starting out looked a lot different than it does today. I can imagine. I can imagine. I can't imagine. But I, uh, I, I, inter- I, I interrupted you there. No, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I know a lot of people who get into jobs or get into work and they f- just don't get along with other people. Or maybe they're just, you know, they're they're raised in a way where they're not able to cope with p- people. Or, or maybe, you know, there's a million different reasons or they're working with people they just don't like or whatever. And you think to yourself, yeah. you know, I could be doing this on my own. I could do this better than my boss. And then, you know, that isn't enough to be able to do it. You know, there has to be a degree of of being able to be honest with yourself, but also being like, okay, well, I'm good at this, but I'm not good at everything. And I, I just yeah. think that I find that there's a lot of people who, you know, you, you hear these like, you hear these people say, you know, find your passion, find what you love and do that. Yeah, it sounds great. But I mean, if you just don't, you know, like I sent an email to my accountant about getting some some stuff done that he didn't do. You know, it's like there's this stuff that, you know, you, you don't realize that you have to do, you know. And, and I just think that I think that there's a lot more there's a lot more to being uh, on your own. And, and I'm just I applaud anybody who wants to and anybody who, you know, it's going to be a struggle and that's just OK. Oh, I I couldn't agree more. I I think that we have these glib kind of figures of speech and sayings about working for yourself in American life. Like, I think you you said, um, do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life and things like that. Or find find what you love and make that your job. Well, it ain't necessarily so. 
In fact, it's probably not so. Um, it's very easy to find what you love, make a job out of it, and then have it ruined because of the sheer amount of dedication and work. It turns out to be in a bunch of stuff that you didn't understand you were actually signing up for right. when you decided to make that in, into a career. Like, as right. a bladesmith, you got to wear about a jillion different hats to be successful. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have to be a webmaster. I have to be, I have to know how to take video. I have to know how to take pictures of knives. I have to know how to make the knives, but I also got to know how to make and maintain equipment and my own shop. You know, the list just goes on and on and on. Fortunately, I enjoy most of those things and, and other things I've come come to peace with having had to learn. <laughs> right. Yeah, I can imagine. So you've you finished, back to this story, you finished with Ken Onion. You're back in the United States, in the mainland. I know Hawaii is part of the United States. Forgive me. What's what's this what's the what's the what's the direction now? So we come back in 2009 and we land with my parents at that house that we built for that first winter to get on our feet. And they live at 4000 feet in eastern Washington and so the winters are harsh and uh Bless their hearts, they helped me build a shop um, because they believed in my knife making. We built a shop next to their house, um, which they needed. To, I mean, they needed a woodshed and park their four-wheeler. I needed a roof to work under to try to make knives. So we built that during the winter. You know, it was like 10, degree, 10 degrees below zero. We were out there framing on that thing and stuff um, because I, I had to get to work. We had no money, and I just had to make it happen. And then uh, we got out of that winter— it was a rough winter being back, you know, from Hawaii, just bang into an eastern Washington mountain winter out in the middle of nowhere. What a slap and, in the face. And trying to make money off of knives, right? <laughs> and so we got through that winter without murdering each other, uh, me and my wife, which is a huge testament to her patience. <laughs> and then uh, we finally realized this is just too far out. We don't have electricity. I can't be firing up a generator every time I need to drill a hole, for instance. And so we found a place to rent um, with a friend of the family down closer to town, still in the mountains. But it had grid power and it had a shop on it and stuff. So we moved in there. We lived there for four years. And I uh, I put a bunch of machines in that shop. Got a, I got my first power hammer when I was in that shop, that little giant 50 and uh, I, I really made a go of it for a few years, uh, making making money mostly on knives and then just taking odd jobs on the side. And the knives that I was making in those days were just like fixed blade hunters and skinners and things. I, I started making some integrals, but they were full tang integrals and uh, with homoans and stuff. Very different style than I work today. And I was making two to $300 knives. So we weren't making much money. My wife was working full time at the time too. It was pretty hard scrabble, but I was making a go of it, and uh, I, I got burnt out. <clears throat> I got burnt out after a while of doing that, and I started picking up more work on the outside because it was a little bit too much solitude for me and stuff, and there was some interesting stuff going on. I started working for a friend who had a fabrication shop, and, and uh, really it helped me out a lot because I, was, I made peace with taking work with other people again. I like working for other people if they're the right people. But the right kind of job for me became anything involved with working steel, fabrication, blacksmithing, right. 
whatever I could find, right? Because I felt that it would inform my work in whatever way. So, and it really did. I, I worked with fabrication for a while. These guys were building, we were chopping up old shipping containers and we were making like mobile kitchens for Whole Foods or like espresso stands and stuff for Illy um, that were shipping around the United States, you know, doing some pretty interesting fab work with hydraulics and, and um, repurposing industrial containers. And then, and I mean, I went to like, flew to Georgia to install with them and worked with them in New Jersey and stuff um, for a while. And then, so there was that. And then we also built art cars for Burning Man, all kinds of random stuff. It was a very fun job, very cool boss, learned a ton. Um, another friend that I made was an artist blacksmith. Um, and he is legendary among artist blacksmiths of the Northwest here. He's a behind the scenes figure. You don't get much more old school than this dude. His name is Gary Eagle. He's in his 70s now. Um, but he's still out there working all the time. He's an artist blacksmith who works in an art deco style. <clears throat> now, if you're familiar with Edgar Brandt's stuff from the 30s. Of course. Or like, or like Carl Weiland's stuff um, from a similar time frame. They were at the cusp of Art Nouveau turning into Art Deco. And... and and realizing how to actualize that design sensibility into steel and bronze and things like that. And that's always been, that was a huge love of mine too. I could have gone that way with metalwork too. Um, I always really loved artist blacksmithing or, you know, making functional items other than knives. And so I worked for this guy, Gary Eagle, and we were in a band together too. He played harmonica. I was on drums. We, you know, we played country and rock gigging around, but I also worked in the shop for him, and we built railings and gates and things like that, chandeliers, big jobs. I'd sit there, and I'd forge the same leaf all day for weeks and then spend weeks welding them to branches that I would also forge the tapers for to a drawing, you know, and, and then we'd weld them onto chandeliers and stuff, and I, I learned a ton from that. That was an amazing job. He was an amazing boss, but jobs dry up. You know, and I always had the knife shop to come back to, and I would always, you know, be a little bit refreshed when I came back. Like I needed a break from it sometimes. And then, uh, you know, 2013, 2012, 13, my wife needed something new to do. She was burnt out on, she was um, like in elder care. And that, that can be a pretty psychically demanding job. Yes. <laughs> and so... Both of us loved to cook. She she had been a cook before in Hawaii, and I've always loved to cook. So we thought, brilliant idea. Let's uh, let's start a little local cafe together, breakfast cafe. And so we did. We rented a, a kitchen space, which already had kitchen equipment in it, in the town of Tanasket here. And we, we made a go of trying to have a breakfast cafe for a couple years. I was basically the short order cook, and she was baking and waitressing there. And that is another thing that is very, very, very difficult to do as a startup. And I have the greatest respect for anyone that actually manages to pull that off because after a year and a half of us trying to do that, we weren't making enough money and I had to go back to metalwork. Right. Uh, fabricating at that point. And, uh, I spent a few more years fabricating for my friend who did art cars and uh, like the, the recycled industrial stuff. Ended up as the foreman of that shop, we had about nine people working for us at that time, and we we're just banging out huge orders of display, custom display units and stands for a company called Alafia. 
And, uh, and then Forge and Fire picked up. And this was, gosh, second season. It was early early 2016, late, late 2015, I got onto the show. And uh, I had not been in the knife shop very much. I had been, you know, just putting tons of work full-time into fabrication, just dog-tired every night, couldn't get out to the shop. But I thought I'd try out for Forged in Fire, having already seen one season of it, kind of got a, a little feel for how it, it was actually going to maybe be as a show, and, uh, and went on there. And that, was, that whole thing was quite an adventure. How so? I mean, obviously, coming to New York to compete on a TV show. Yeah, it's a, it was a completely alien world for me to observe. Very, very interesting to see what, to get a, a taste of like a slice of life of, uh, of like TV production life in New York City. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I tried to go with, I tried to not need to win, you know. I tried to just go and say, I'm going to have fun. This is going to be an adventure. And if I do well, that'll just be the icing on the cake. And ended up winning um, with uh, the Kopesh, Season 2, Episode 2. And I'm still proud of that sword. I mean, it was pretty good for five days. I got sick toward the end of that five days, too. And, uh, yeah, boy, that was exhausting. But it, it was pretty gratifying to watch Dave Baker just smash through those cow legs like no problem with it and uh so after that after that actually turned out to be a success i came back and we just finished fabricating this huge order of stuff it was in early july 2016 and i i said i'm going back to work for myself full time i think i can do it now um i know a lot of people have said that they didn't experience a huge inrush of business after being on Forged and Fire. For me, I did get a lot of business from Forged and Fire for whatever reason. <laughs> I got a lot of just whatever random emails. People like, hey, I've never I've never ordered a knife before. What would it cost? What's the whole process? What do we do here? And so I did a lot of explaining knives and explaining the process and got a fair amount of orders out of it, enough to hit the ground running and just... It was scary because my wife was pregnant at the time. She was gonna. She was due in August, and here I was considering going back into knife making full time from having been a full time fabricator. Um, but I went for it, full speed ahead. Somehow made it work that first year. Somehow got a little bit better the second year, and uh, you know it's it's just kind of led from. That's the most recent inception of my knife making is the period from night from 2016 until now. Hmm. I it's the. The the build is so the build of your life to leading you to now is was so it's so interesting because it really kind of comes to a crescendo. And I know you're still a young guy, but like these all these experiences are like building upon you and you're having these great reactions and then the forge and fire was a great experience for you, but it like you know, it's once again it solidified some permanence in your life of being a knife maker. I mean you won the money. You, you won the whole thing. It's just like, okay, there's a little bit of permanence. Maybe, you know, obviously, you know, I, I, the fabrication is very interesting. And I think that, I think that there's a, there's a fascination. I have a fascination between the difference between blacksmiths and bladesmiths in the sense of blacksmiths are fascinated with the outside of the material versus bladesmiths are interested on the inside of the material. But the fact that you were able to kind of like 
it all just kind of swirled into the final decision, which is to get back into knife making. It's captivating. There were some moments where you paused and then you were, I don't know if you're waiting for me to talk or not, or not, but I was so captivated. I was like one of the listeners. I was just wanting to hear what you were going to say. So <laughs> I just, I'm very happy for you. You know, that's, that's the, the bottom line is you feel, I feel like you've been able to like, you're, you're, you found a port, you found a port in your life, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it's funny that you should say that. Um, you know, if I pause for a minute, sometimes it's because I realize that I very often conversation will go on out on a tangent and then I will go farther out on that tangent until I'm out here on a conversational branch where I'm dangling from a twig that's about <laughs> to snap. <laughs> not this so, not this time. Not this so time. So I'm I'm trying no, no. I try to recognize moments at which, hey man, maybe I need to just like stop talking for a minute <laughs> and then and then like let that other person respond or start a different topic. No, 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 no. I'm I just I, I am fascinated by your whole story because it's like, you know, I think that a lot of listeners probably understand this feeling of like starting off and just kind of not really knowing what you're going to do and you take some chances and some that you learn from all the different chances but like how it just kind of comes to this you know to now it's just like it's just it's a wonderful it's a wonderful story of you know redemption for the most part i mean it's like you know finding out who you are and and um and then seeing what you do i mean you you i mean whether you not want to hear it or not i mean you're one of the best knife makers in america and it's like i think for people to see that you had these struggles in life and then to be able to kind of like get on top of it all and become as proficient and as successful and i've said this before on other podcasts like about Morocco, but like you go down to atlanta the blade show off the street I think you get master bladesmith right off the street. If you if you took away all the you took away all the the you know, the bureaucracy and the time frame and everything like that. I mean, you're one of the most proficient and the most exceptional knife makers in the country, at least. So I don't know. I, I think that I, I find say. it all be fascinating. I I really do appreciate that, Jeff. Um, it's true, and I'm glad Dude, I'm glad that you haven't found me to be a, a boring person to talk to. I, Come on, I worry man! About that Are you kidding then. me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You've been amazing. I mean, we're not done. I mean, I, I'm not giving you the hook by by any means. But I mean, I am fascinated by the fact yeah. that you've you've been able to kind of like, you know, it's not just the making the knives. I mean, you've you've set yourself up as you know your work has its own signature to who you are like there's certain people that like nick nick anger Mareko, you when you see when i see those knives without the, the person's name on it i know whose it is you know your damascus especially where it's like everything's so crisp and it's so clean and the contrasts are so stark and like i said before i think kaleidoscopic is more uh a better explanation of or better description of your work because it is like these these mirror images that are just back and forth you know kaleidoscopes with like lots of mirrors and the light goes in and sure. then the, the the reflections go upon each other and upon each other and then you create this thing you've set yourself apart as having a signature that's it's recognizable by anybody how did you how do you feel like you've gotten to that point um, well, I mean, like anyone else, I just have a, a ton of influences. Um, and, and I don't know if I got this from my dad or, or what, but I feel like I did. And just the idea that 
all of the all of the great artists painters of the past had to learn by studying the works of those that went before them but you also don't get to be a great artist by just being a copy artist so what you have to do is strike a balance between copying techniques enough to learn them but then again just incorporating them into your own sensibility um so you're not being a plagiarist uh i mean the guys that you mentioned moreco i mean i remember I was making integral kitchen knives before I knew of Mareko's work. However, when I met Mareko uh, at the 2014 Seattle Knife Show, where he had a table and he won Best Chef Knife, it was a revelation. I picked up his knives, and they were much lighter than a person would think, and they were beautifully finished. So there was that. Um, Haley and Adam DeRosiers have been a huge influence. Um, Haley also makes – both of them make amazing chef knives, but Haley was making multi-bar Damascus you know, Turkish, Merovingian, that just blew my mind uh, around that time frame too, 2014, 15. And so I was trying to make knives like that. I was very much a multi-bar guy before I was a mosaic Damascus guy. Hmm. Now I like them both. I, I wouldn't throw one out in favor of the other. They're just But they're you're just combining techniques that you together put together. Too. Yes. And you're you, combining you use them, them all. You learn all of the above, and then you make composite Damascus, which I like. Hmm. Um and then Rodrigo Sfredo, still probably sure. my favorite overall bladesmith of all time. Just so, hmm. so creative, so technically technically proficient. And his work just had this sense of, of just uncompromising. He, he, he had a vision and he went for it. He, it it's, it's think of the beauty first and then figure out how to make the knife while you're going for it. You know? Um, so all of that, I, I just really admired guys that would uh, go all out and try to do something new and not just do something, you know, let's not make a four-way pattern that's a little bit different than any, let's not make a different explosion than any, any, everyone else has already made, but let's let's try to reimagine something or, or, or maybe try to come up with something a bit more out of whole cloth, like jelly roll, for instance. Jelly roll is a pretty cool pattern. It's a really neat concept, and it goes back to at least the 90s, uh, maybe even the, the 80s, I'm not sure. You know, guys like Schwarzer and, of course, Don Fogg, another huge favorite of mine, were doing stuff like that. Fogg came up with Ws. That's just basic Damascus today, but it was mind-blowing when Fogg came up with it. And it doesn't mean that you can't do new things with it, even to this day. And the jelly roll technique was one thing where it's like everyone had just been rolling up straight bars of whatever pattern density, density and that looks cool, but it gets boring after a little while. Um, and then I thought, well, like the edge of a ladder bar has this heavy squiggle to it, and that's really cool. Let's make a ladder bar, and then let's roll that up. And then we'll have, we'll have that ladder edge grain in a jelly roll, and it's going to look like a rose or something. Tried it, went for it, came out uh, amazing. I mean, again, I never mean to toot my own horn, but when I pull something out of the acid that I'm really pleased with, it, it came out how I thought it would, you know? That's that's a huge, a huge part of what keeps this as what I want to do going forward as a living, right? It's but this that's, payoff. That's the physical manifestation of you having control over your decisions. Like I feel like that is in and it of itself, and especially when you look at your work, 
where it's so like there's not a lot of I mean I'm saying this with 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 respect there isn't spontaneous spontaneousness in your work because you've already established what you're going to do beforehand and then you see through and your your the 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 difference between failure and success is this razor thin margin so to be able to kind of give yourself this you know high uh, high goal and to pull it out and see it that it worked I mean that's 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 got to be a great feeling. It is, but it's because it's a risk too. It's a real a big risk, risk to put to put that amount of time into something that hasn't been done, or maybe you you just haven't seen that it's been done before. It's very tough to always categorize to always say unequivocally this is a new thing. I mean, you're going to be wrong most of the time if you say that. But I hadn't seen that before. But I and I tried it and I thought it was going to work, and when it worked. It, it felt so good because if it hadn't worked, it would have been a, just almost a week probably of work down the drain that I wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten paid for. I needed it to work. <sighs> it's tough to always work on that basis. I'm, I'm too afraid to do it sometimes, frankly. There are times at which I cannot afford to try the thing that is in my head. I, I, the guts you need, and I speak to Mareko, you know, we speak once a week for the, you know, on Knife Talk. The guts you need to be able to put in that kind of work and to pull something out and then all of a sudden and especially with your work like i mean it's like i i there's something you you were mentioning uh before and, and i actually you said fabric and stuff like that and my wife and i were talking about it we were work we were looking at your knives and she i like talking with her because she does not a knife maker but she like she has a design sense and she used words like we were talking about fabric and kaleidoscopes and stuff like that there is like a there's like a textile quality to your work but that comes from the fact that it's so precise that your margins yeah. of error are now based on like what you see from a microscope you know, you know i i love that you picked up on that textiles um yeah this is a big, well, hard a big part of of how i describe things when i when i try to talk to mascus with other smith smiths or even people that aren't you know into the craft um with composite Damascus, it's really as if you're creating different textiles and different patterns and then you're using swatches of those cloths to come up with like a quilt, which is a new com a new pattern composition comprising those elements. You learn how to make a variety of elements, and that that's your that's your vocabulary as an artist. And then and then you try to combine them in ways that make sense. And I really I, I look at textiles. I look at like I'll look up um fractal fractal um, seamless vectors and stuff like that. Um, and there's a lot of stuff I want to make that I don't know how to make yet that I make steps toward. Um, sometimes it's very frustrating, but very much I get from glass, but even more so from fabric, uh, inspiration from, from other disciplines. But the fabric is easy to see. And, you know, I hate to use the word paisley because it's like my least favorite pattern, but most people know what paisley <sighs> is. I mean, there is a quality to your work, and it's not just like, you know, you could use textiles like, uh, like houndstooth and all that stuff like that, that doesn't give you enough um, uh, gravity. Like you, the 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 patterns I was reminded of are like you know paisley, where there's these there are these you know they're very descriptive uh, objects that are working together with them within themselves, and that's why I kind of like keep going back to this kind of like kaleidoscopic effect because you know they sure. work within them within the, within themselves, but like I said everything is so tight and that's so like 
it's just like the the margins of error. You have no margin of error. So the guts you have, I just, you know, I'm in I'm in awe of. Well, if you and I had a knife of mine and we were sitting there looking at it and talking about it, I could point to you a bunch of areas that bug the living hell out of me out of almost any knife that I've ever made. But that's um, that's that's what any artist does. <laughs> Any artist, any even a paint, painters. My buddy Andy B. He'll tell me all about what he doesn't like about his paintings. I, you know that's just the way it is. I mean, you you you've you've been around it too long that you see those things. Sure, and well, and that's that's always been a struggle for me is is having perspective, um, because I find that by the end of a project, oftentimes I've become too bogged down in small disappointments that I'm unable to see the knife anymore. And so my perspective is incorrect. I, I'm hmm. not the person to ask whether it's a success or a good knife or, you know, I, I'm not the person to ask about that. I try to have people I trust to give me feedback about my work if I get to that point. And I think you, that you've said this before, um, and I, I agree greatly on this point, that's a huge part of going to knife shows. I mean, in this day and age, you can be a knife maker without ever going to knife shows and be a financial success, at least for, for a while. But you need to go to knife shows just to get a reference on, well, just how good is everyone else's work. Yeah. You know, there's no, no such thing as a perfect knife. I mean, Nick Wheeler, who makes perfect knives as far as I'm considered, will be the first guy to tell you that. But what you de do need to do is you need to go and look at those knives made by makers that you respect and look at them closely and see just how good is good enough for that person. Right. Is, is it the so micron level? That, see, <laughs> that leads me, that leads me to, I heard uh, Bob Kramer was on my friends, uh, Mert and uh, Corin and um, Kev's podcast, knife maker down under knife making down under knife making down under knife making down under. And he, and Bob Kramer said, good enough is just how far or not good enough but it's like it all is the perspective is how far back you're looking you know how close you're looking how close you're looking to the object is kind of where you get your ideas of what if it's good enough or not you know i thought it was sure. very uh that was a very interesting uh, way to see it which is 100 percent true oh absolutely i mean a Salem, lot of a lot of fabricated or blacksmith work man it looks great from a foot away or two feet away, because that's where it's designed to be seen from. But if you get up to like holding it next to your, you know, holding it by your face, it doesn't look good anymore. I, I just did a watercolor. I'm starting to do more painting and I'm starting to do more watercolors. And I actually am starting to do less like uh, drawings and more like paintings, like uh, kind of more, not abstract, but like more paintings, uh, paintings. I'm not doing like just, uh, you know, drawings and knives and I'm doing paintings. And I did this one and I was really into it for a long time. And then I put it back to take a picture of it and I fucking hated it. I hated it. I hated it as soon as I, as soon as I, I had never stepped back to look at it. Like I was told, because with watercolor, especially, you know, you're painting a, f a flat on the table. You're not painting on an easel. So when you're painting sure. on an easel, you have the ability to kind of like lean back. You know, you can step back and take a look at it. But when you're painting watercolor yeah. and it's on flat on the table, you're never really stepping back and looking at it because it's always drying flat on the table. And it was one of those things where I was like, I hate this painting. I hate this painting. And I had this picture and I was just like, race it from my phone, put the thing in the bottom of the, you know, this is like a total, I thought, 
I'm really excited about this. And I look back and I was just like, I hate this thing. Hate this. Oh yeah. Yeah. I get it, man. I I remember seeing some comments somewhere out there in internet land that I really identified with was some bladesmith talking about how, you know, they fail at something and then they just like, they fit, they just destroyed that thing in a fit of disappointed rage. Hmm. I was like, yeah, I get, I get all, all about the fit of disappointed rage. But that comes from the fact that we were talking about, like, the satisfaction of, the satisfaction of, you know, uh, seeing your idea in the, manifest in a physical form. But when you step back and you look at it and you realize you screwed the whole thing up because you didn't see it from a specific angle, that's almost worse because you're just like, I was too, I was too focused on the details to understand the full body of the work. You know, Very that's much. really what, I, you know, it's, it's a hard situation. Well, that and there's this other whole level of like, maybe you needed that hit of success. Maybe your maybe your drug is your success that you're wanting, and you needed that hit worse worse than was healthy for you. And then when you didn't get it, and you got a big hit of disappointment instead, well, that's where that that's where that disappointment and rage and despair can come from. And I've definitely felt that you know you you can't be too tied to to outcomes sometimes. Well, because it's a it's a manifestation of you not having control of your decision making. You know, it's like yes. it's a it's a failure in that regards. So, <sighs> what's next for you? What's what's going on with you? I know you're doing a lot with eating tools, which I'm thrilled for. I like Abe very much. I uh, met Abe over at Eating Tools uh, down with Nick uh, last year, two years ago. What are you up to these days? What's going? What's next for Salem Straub? Oh, I'm sorry. I know exactly what's going on. You're teaching at the Center for Metal Arts. Yes, sir. Um, Let me me try to convey how pumped I am about that. Okay, so to anyone that doesn't know kind of the, the backstory behind Center of Metal Arts as it is today... To me, it is unbelievable and kind of a fairy tale ending for that campus that they have now. Um, to have a school there is absolutely incredible, and and that Pat Quinn managed to to make it work through all that hard work is a huge gift to the bladesmithing and blacksmithing community at large. I think um, it. The odd thing is, I listened to your interview with Pat and. And he found out about that place because of a picture of a power hammer that he saw on the internet, and I think maybe even on a Facebook group. The odd thing is that I found out about it the same way. It was it was the other hammer, the 2,000-pound Chambersburg self-contained hammer. I saw a picture of it on a Facebook group, a black-and-white picture, and I went, whoa, buddy, where's that? And I, I went down that rabbit, that rabbit, uh, rabbit tunnel and I found um, an entire Library of Congress photo spread on the place um, as an empty blacksmith shop, black and white. And I, I went through those, and it just it knocked me back a step. I went, I have to make a pilgrimage to there and get into that building and look around at some point. It's, it's incredible. And this was before it was ever going to be set. It was still shuttered. The future was uncertain for it, as far as I know. And then to find out. Pat Quinn had had the same experience, and yet he was able to go do something about it and did it is just incredible. And now the fact that I can go there to teach in that place, and it is a mecca of industrial heritage in this country and in the world because we were at the forefront of the steelmaking industry in the time and place where that was made is a little bit more than I can express, I feel. 
Oh, well, you're, I think you expressed it perfectly. I mean, Pat is one of the best blacksmiths of the modern age. And for him to be down there teaching at such a high level and to have extraordinary teachers and like having you down there is just, I think it's very fitting, you know? It's great. Oh, no, I his story wait. is it's his story with the new his story with the Center for Mental Arts is awesome. And yeah, that episode was a lot of fun. I got a lot of real good feedback on that. And you're gonna have you know, the funny thing is is I get these messages from people. And I, I'm I you know, I had had real good conversations with Pat before the podcast and then afterwards too. And you know, we were trying to push as much as possible. And the funny thing is I get all these messages from people saying, you know, I'm thinking about whether or not I can take the class with Salem Straub, and I'm just like, yo. Pat told me that was sold out in December, dude. <laughs> this is this is the hottest ticket and the hottest ticket in town is to get to the Center for Metal Arts. So if you're thinking about it, you're probably already too late. So hey, I think it's gonna I'm be really amazing. I'm really pleased that that a lot of interest has been shown, and I'm I'm 100 percent committed to to giving the people that managed to make it into that class um, the best possible value for their money, and um, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. It's going to be, I'm, I wish it was closer to me. I, I see, I, I was lucky because the original center for metal arts was only 40 minutes away. But now it's like for me to drive down there, it's a little bit hectic. I'll get down there at some point. Pat is amazing. And you know, Dan Neville too, it's extraordinary. And then the teachers are going to be down there and Nick's going to be down there and he's got a pile. There are classes available. If you're listening to this podcast, go to the center for metal arts and there are classes available. I know Jesse Savage has got a bottle opener class and they have uh, rooms available. So you can actually get the full experience by uh, staying there. And one of the things that was interesting to me, especially if you're going to be down there when Salem's down there, is you're going to have an interactive experience where you're going to be able to like, you know, have meals together and, you know, it's going to be a really great experience. And they're very COVID orthodox, which I like. I like yep, very much. as am I. So I appreciate that as well. Salem? I'm very, I'm very, very honored that you came on this podcast. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your unguarded nature and just, you're just, you're an inspiration to a lot of people. And, and when I say you're on the Mount Rushmore, you've been on the Mount Rushmore for a long time and for a lot of people too. So I can't thank you enough. Well, hey man, I really appreciate it. And uh, this is, this is an opportunity that uh, I was real happy to have. I, I love what you guys are doing. Like I say, uh, knife making podcast, also a great favorite of mine. And thanks for keeping me company during all those hours of hand sanding for sure. Well, you're, you're always welcome. Listen, you ever want to come back on? You're always welcome. Full blast podcast, or we even, maybe we'll wake you up and you come on the knife talk once in a while. We, we don't get a lot of guests anymore on knife talk. Oh, and that said, guys, Big shout out to Holly Loftus of Loftus Knives. I can't thank her enough. She reached out to me a few months ago and she said, you know, International Women's Day is coming up. And I had this crazy dream that I took over Knife Talk for International Women's Day. And she did. She interviewed amazing knife makers, uh, female knife makers. She did an incredible job. She worked her, took us off. She did an amazing wow. job. So Holly, you were, she did a great job. She had Grace Grace Horn on, and I think I'm getting their names wrong. Uh, the, the Destroyer, I'm not going to say their names because in my mind I'm thinking I'm making a big mistake. But go over to the Life Talk and listen <laughs> to the 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 uh, takeover because Holly did an extraordinary job. It's a different feel because it's she's a different person, and I'm I'm getting her on this podcast whether she likes it or not. She's going to be coming on here. We're going to talk to her. But in the meantime, guys, next week. 
I have Charlie Lionheart, Charlie Ellis. My buddy Charlie Ellis is going to be on the podcast. I got a few Ooh. other people. Yeah, Charlie's awesome. Charlie's a good dude. Charlie's going to be dude, on. Dude, he's on a we tear. A, he is like the Duck Duck King. He, he's Mr. Yes. Friction Folder. He's he's. I love everything he does. He's another eating tools guy. I I'm very interested in 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 all you guys and and you you inspire me and so does Charlie and I can't wait to see him. Salem, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time and your energy, and this was a huge, this was a huge deal for me. So I appreciate it. All right, brother. Thanks for having me on, and I'll talk to you again sometime soon. I'm with you. And guys, do me a favor. Go back as over to Axe Wax. Put in uh, full blast ten. Get yourself ten percent off on some Axe Wax. And we have good things coming up in the future. Once again, everybody, thank you for all your support. Uh, it's been really helpful to me, and I appreciate the hell out of all of you. And uh, once again, Salem Straub, everybody. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.